Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. If you've had COVID recently, you're not alone. We're in another wave and infections are up again. But there are other viruses having a moment right now, too. I think we have to keep our eye on the ball because outbreaks are on the increase. Lena Sun covers public health and infectious diseases for The Post. Part of it is more human and animal contact, but part of it also is climate change. Increased temperature, heat makes it easier for certain kinds of vector-borne diseases, i.e. ticks and mosquitoes, to spread. And there's also a war and instability that we are seeing so many places around the world. Israel, Gaza, in Ukraine, and in many other parts of the world. Lena has spent a lot of time looking at different viruses around the world and why the response to outbreaks is so uneven. And problem with public health is when it is working, it is so invisible. That's the first thing that tends to get cut. And so the hope is that people realize the importance of general surveillance and detection for all kinds of disease. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm your guest host, Arjun Singh. It's Wednesday, January 17th. Today, an update on the latest COVID variant and what the public health response to two other viruses can tell us about the world's ability to respond to future outbreaks. My colleague, Alahe Azadi, picks up the conversation with Lena from here. Lena, it's nice to talk with you. It's nice to be here with you. Happy New Year. You too. I... I heard recently that you got COVID for the first time. Is that right? That is right. I got it in early November. And I have to tell you, am I allowed to use the word pissed on the radio? We'll find out. (laughs) Why? I was so mad because I thought, wow, I'm one of those people who has managed to dodge it since 2020. And I have not been living in a cave. I've been out and doing things and triaging based on risk and you know, common sense. You're not seeing me any mosh pits, anything like that. I would pay to see that, Lena. (laughs) I think a lot of people would pay to see that. Um, So when I did get sick, I was very annoyed. And luckily, knock wood, you can hear that. I did not get very sick. And, you know, I recovered very quickly. But I did have cough, congestion, a fever, But the fever broke overnight. And Mm -hmm. I think it's hard for people to generalize, but really so much of it depends on individual circumstances, right? Right. Well, first of all, I'm glad that it wasn't too severe for you and that you're back and and talking with me. (laughs) Um, So, Lena, I do want to talk with you today about all the different ways that virus outbreaks are being handled. And These are different virus outbreaks that you and your colleagues have reported on. And first, I want to start with COVID. That's probably the most obvious one, the the one that most people are familiar with and are on their minds. So are we 
in the midst of another COVID wave right now. Can you sort of break down for us what's actually happening here? We are in the midst of another COVID wave. It is not unexpected. It is winter. Winter is when everybody comes indoors. We're gathered inside. We have holidays. And people are also at the point where like, you know, they're just like, screw it. I'm going to go to this party. I'm going to go to this gathering. And we don't have as good a handle on case numbers because there's not that reporting. So Mm. the metrics we're using are hospitalizations, which are, as a result, are up. But they're still not as high as they were a year ago. There are some epidemiologists who are out there saying this is the second largest wave since Omicron. And compared to last year, hospitalizations were now at about 34,000. The most recent data last year, this time, it was about 44,000 hospitalizations. So we're not quite there yet, but it's definitely ticking up. What people are telling us is that we have this viral soup, right? Mm. We have COVID, we have flu, we have RSV. And lots of people are getting sick for all sorts of reasons, but COVID is still the main driver for deaths. Is there anything about this particular wave then that concerns you more than others? This wave, you know, the variant that's dominant is JN1, and it has more mutations, and the mutations make it easier to get this virus, right? It's a little bit more immune evasive. So far, the data show that the vaccines that just came out work against this. But the fear always is, you know, this virus is out there. It, let's say, gets into someone who's immunocompromised. And it's harder for somebody who's got a weak immune system to fight the virus. The virus has a longer time to hang out there and develop more mutations to make it stronger. So then the next version could mm-hmm. maybe be, they call it to be more virulent or pathogenic. Right now, it's not there, but that's always the fear. You know, Lena, it also feels like we've all collectively accepted, at least on a societal level, that COVID is around, um, that this is just part of life. And even the people who were the strictest about masking previously are I'm not seeing as many masks as I used to see. I used to see, like, my grocery store, a lot of people were wearing masks, and now I hardly ever see anyone wearing a mask in there. So we've also been hearing the messaging that masking helps prevent the spread of COVID and how important vaccines are for preventing death and overloading the healthcare system. So are you seeing people be lax about those things or having different attitudes about them because of this sort of, well, we just accept this is now endemic? I do think it really depends on who you are and what parts of the country you're living in. Definitely, we see uptake of the COVID vaccine has been abysmal. For adults, uptake is only about 21%, and that is lower than flu. And it's also low for kids. It's also low for pregnant women, but also it is very low in nursing homes. Mm. And that is your highest risk category. Elderly person with perhaps comorbidities. And not only is it low among the nursing home residents, it is low among the nursing home staff. Yeah, it's just interesting because I felt like people were a lot more enthusiastic about getting the first or even second version of the, the COVID vaccine than they are now. And I just wonder why. I think people are just tired. They're thinking, you know, I'm maybe they had a mild illness. And they thought, oh, it's just like a cold. I'm not going to bother. Mm-hmm. The thing is, you 
don't really want to play Russian roulette with this virus, for which we don't know very much about. You know, it gets into every single organ system of your body. It, they've found it in the heart tissue, in the brain tissue after autopsies. It can cause long COVID. Of course, the more you're vaccinated, um, the more protected you are. Mm-hmm. You know, we've been talking about the United States, and I'm wondering how this all compares to the rest of the world when it comes to COVID and how it's spreading and how people are responding to it. Well, last year, the World Health Organization told its member countries that they no longer had to report daily cases and deaths, and they could switch to weekly reports, which is very similar to what happened in the United States in May when the public health emergency ended. A lot of the daily reporting went away to weekly and different metrics. And so if you look at the graph around the world, um, since July, there was a huge drop in the cases. But as here in the United States, it started to tick back up in December, you know, people gathering. So in, in certain countries, you know, the respiratory illness season has gone up in China. They've noticed a big tick up. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about how widespread it is also in the UK. I mean, I think in general, the world has the same kind of, you know, viral fatigue, pandemic fatigue that we in the United States have experienced. We need to give our public health agencies the tools and the funding to do the jobs that they can do day in and day out so that they can do the detection and the surveillance when something starts to take effect. And I think so much of it depends on the level of an individual's country's trust in their government. And meanwhile, the virus is continuing to evolve and we're still facing all these dynamics. So, Lena, we've been talking about COVID both in the United States and around the world. And now I want to talk about a different virus to see what we can learn about the state of this virus and what it tells us about how the world is responding to viruses and viral outbreaks. So first, tell me about Mpox. What is this virus? This is a virus that burst on the scene recently in a way that uh, it sort of spread outside of where it normally is seen. And we had this big outbreak in the United States and it also led to a public health emergency. The U.S. has the most confirmed cases in the world right now. More than 6,600 cases have been confirmed by the CDC. For the moment, this is an outbreak that's concentrated among men who have sex with men, especially those with multiple sexual partners. That means that this is an outbreak that can be stopped with the right strategies in the right groups. So Mpox can spread to anyone through close, personal, often skin-to-skin contact. So direct contact with the rash and scabs from a person with Mpox, as well as contact with their saliva and mucus and areas around the anus, the rectum, or vagina. And We don't really know the reservoir, what animal is where this virus percolates. We think maybe it's some kind of pouched rat and some kind of rodent, but it is a nasty disease. It has been mostly hitting people in Africa, and it appears as blisters and lesions on your skin and um, internal organs. And there is a vaccine for it. But what we saw in December um, at the end of last year was a surge of this in the Democratic Republic of Congo, in DRC. 
The disease has claimed nearly 600 lives in the DRC this year. Most of them were children. On Thursday, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued an alert about the dangerous Clade 1-MPOX outbreak. They've always had this disease, but what they've noticed is a version of MPOX that is deadlier. And that mm. is what is causing the surge in Congo. And it raises all these questions because it, it's one of those diseases where we have a vaccine for it, but they're not using the, that vaccine in Congo and where we have that here in the United States. So why are people not able to get or aren't getting the vaccine in the Democratic Republic of Congo? And I also wonder, was there a lot of uptake of this vaccine in the United States? Because I felt like there was an extra layer of stigma around MPOX, even in the U.S. Uptake of MPOX was, I think, initially there was a lot of good messaging and um, there, to certain groups. And initially the administration was a little bit leery about marketing of, of messaging directly to gay and lesbian communities where this is a bigger risk. But it is something that we are still, the U.S. is still keeping its eye on. We have not had this particular version in the United States. But let's say somebody who had this deadlier version was hospitalized. There is a whole protocol around what happens to the waste um, and the material with that because it's considered a highly dangerous pathogen is like protocol and how do you transport it and it just there's all this behind the scenes protocol regulations that have to be worked out some epidemiologists have said that we are just looking sort of at a double standard because we have the vaccine available here and they don't have the vaccine available in drc Bavarian Nordic, which manufactures the Genios vaccine, said it has not been approached by African nations seeking vaccine in the last two years and has encountered regulatory hurdles in donating it. Even if this two-dose vaccine were approved, distributing it in DRC would be really complicated because it is just really hard to get shots to rural areas. I remember during Ebola, you had to keep the vaccine cold. People had to carry it in these little packs on motorcycles. The roads were bad. They would get washed out during the rain. It's and healthcare workers were also being attacked, too. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we're talking two very, very different systems here. Yeah. So the approval process is just part of it. It is something that we are still, the U.S. is still keeping its eye on because we have not had this particular version in the United States. Mm -hmm. Lena, what can we learn about how the world has responded to and is responding to MPOX right now? MPOX has been around in these endemic parts of the world for some time. And I think what this shows is that the health equity issues, like how quickly the U.S., relatively speaking, jumped onto this public health emergency and how stigma and homophobia also probably play a role in containing sexual transmission of the virus in Congo. Stepping back, I think, you know, DRC, it is riven by war and 
fighting of militias and it is really, really hard to get sustained public health care in many parts. And I, I think it just shows you when you have the resources and you have the willpower, you can definitely make a difference. After the break, Lena explains how a kitten named Stanley sparked a massive public health response and what our response to these outbreaks tells us about our future. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. So, Lena, we have been talking a lot about viruses that seem like they're a step ahead of us humans, um, even when we have some powerful tools and knowledge at our disposal. But there is another example that you recently reported on where a big group of people took aggressive action and put these very powerful tools to use. And it all started because of a kitten named Stanley. So can you tell me about Stanley? Stanley was a little black and white tuxedo kitten, and he appeared in the driveway mewling somewhere in Omaha. Eventually, the kitten was adopted by a couple, and they took the kitten home, and they thought the kitten was adorable. And the first family took it to the vet and they thought they noticed like a little scratch on the top of its head. And they thought maybe that was ringworm. And the vet said, you know, just give the kitten some medicine. And then over a period of the weekend, the poor little thing was having seizures and and had to be resuscitated by her husband who did these little chest compressions. Oh my gosh. Yeah, as I saw the pictures are so cute. Anyway, on that Monday morning, they took the kitten to the vet. The vet said, you know, it's been out in the wild. It could be any number of things. But one of them, she did not cross off the list, was rabies. Hmm, yeah. And the kitten was too young to have been um, vaccinated as a as a pet. So then the little animal just got worse and worse and worse and died. And then the vet said, you know, I'm just going to be doubly sure I'm going to send the kitten to the lab to get the rabies test. And the lab came back and said it was positive for rabies. So Stanley had rabies. Why was that concerning from a public health perspective? Because the kind of rabies that Stanley had is not found 
in that part of the country. They are able to do the lab tests can figure out a whether you do have rabies, and then there is a more specialized test where they can say, "What kind of rabies is this?" And it turned out to be a strain of raccoon rabies that belongs on the east coast, thirteen states on the east coast. Oh boy, that's far. So it immediately set off alarm bells among the epidemiologists in. Omaha and in the CDC that you know when this came through flag one of the CDC guys who was on the rabies team he thought oh did somebody make a mistake did they oh. read this wrong because there's only two reasons why Stanley could be having rabies either the virus had somehow traveled 900 miles in these last several years to Omaha right? And it was endemic in the region and some other animal bit Stanley and Stanley got rabies. Or somehow Stanley and his mom hopped a ride on some truck or trailer or car and got driven to Omaha where they picked up the rabies in Georgia or some of the southeastern Mm -hmm. states, but they didn't know. And you don't want to screw around with rabies. Rabies is fatal. In, In humans too? Yeah. And so if it had somehow escaped detection, that would have shocked them because once rabies is in some place, then it would spread among animals, you know, in concentric circles, and it would affect a Mm -hmm. large swath of people because there are no physical barriers, you know, you have mountains and you have lakes, but there's in that area, they were very, very worried. And it costs a lot to take care of rabies. You know, shots are very expensive. You have to get three shots and it's thousands of dollars. Wow. But so what they were trying to do is to try to figure out which scenario was it and you had to move fast. So what they do? So USDA, which is part of this, got all of their specialists to bring traps from Vermont and Ohio and drive to Omaha. And the idea was they were going to set up traps to then vaccinate animals, and secondly, to drop these little ketchup-sized packets that have vaccine, oral rabies vaccine in them, in the area to vaccinate the animals. Like from the sky? Yes, sir. They do this sort of oral rabies vaccine um, along the East Coast in this sort of raccoon rabies band. It's either once a year or twice a year, and that is from the sky. But when they were in Omaha, they were going around in parks, along trails, and they were doing it from, you know, from trucks and and people and putting it in some place. And the idea is, if you can get this vaccine out to a, a certain percentage of the animals out there, it can start to take effect. And then they also wanted to vaccinate raccoons. Raccoons are a very big um, reservoir of this virus. So they set these traps and then to bait the traps, they put in marshmallows because to the raccoon, which also has a sweet tooth, the marshmallow kind of looks like an egg and raccoons like to eat eggs. And so they go into the traps and then the animal biologists come by and they (laughs) vaccinate the raccoon. They put a tag on the raccoon's ear, set the raccoon free. And so they know that those raccoons Mm -hmm. have been been vaccinated. I'm like, that's how you bait me. Just put some marshmallow, a little bit of chocolate. That's how you're going to catch me. (laughs) 
So wait, did this all work? Well, we won't know for sure, right? Then the other piece of the science behind this is, how will we know whether the virus is out there? Well, it would be in animals. Well, you can't go and take people's pets, right? But roadkill, anything that is an animal that's already dead and brought into um, wildlife or, you know, animal control, they can do a test to see if they find any rabies virus in the brain of those animals. And when I last checked, they had done this for almost 300 animals, no sign Mm. of rabies. So they're going to keep checking for the next couple of months and they won't be able to give the all clear probably until February. But if that's the case, then good. Yeah, Lena, this this story about rabies, this known virus that's been around for a very long time, what gives me a measure of, I don't know if hope is the right word, is that this is an example where you have dedicated, competent people applying knowledge that has been generated over a long period of time to stopping a problem before it actually becomes a problem. And that we humans are capable of doing that in the fight against viruses. Yes. And I think the rabies story tells you just how effective this can be and what works over time. You know, I just got a message from Texas, which has a similar program where there used to be human deaths in Texas due to canine rabies. And many people in the areas had to get these post-exposure rabies vaccine treatments, which is expensive and it's four shots. But they've had this program in place for three decades um, and they used to drop bait to control it in South Texas. And the number of animal rabies cases caused by this variant dropped from 122 cases in 1994 this is the first year to do the airdrop, to zero cases by the year 2000. Wow. So these these work, and, and it happens just behind the scene. Well, Lena, we've talked about three different viruses so far, COVID, MPOX, and rabies. And, you know, stepping back and thinking of these, they're very different, but what do these three examples highlight for us about our ability to prevent and to respond to outbreaks of all kinds in this you know, quote-unquote, post-pandemic world? So with COVID, I think the challenge is, and I'm sorry if I'm sounding like I'm beating a dead horse, the challenge is to regain trust in government and public health enough so that going forward, if there turns out to be another variant that is really much more lethal and will require people to take those measures again, that there will be effective communication so that people can take those measures. Um, I think because of what happened with the pandemic, that that trust is lost and it's very hard for people to take government agencies seriously, not just in the United States, but elsewhere. With MPOX, it is a different set of issues that is much more a health equity piece, and that involves much more than just government, but it's government and manufacturers and regulations around vaccines, because here we have a tool that we know works and is available, and that is something that just 
speaks to the health equity issue that many world leaders say they really care about, but now they have to put their money where their mouth is. Yeah. And with rabies, I think that is a prime example of something that has been around for a long time. And governments and public health officials have seen the devastation that can be caused. And this is decades and decades of research and science. And it's just built in the USDA does these airdrops of rabies vaccine and it works. It's part of the landscape that happens. And everybody knows that if you get a pet, you have to go get your head to get a rabies shot. And I think that just shows the difference. Now, COVID is a brand new virus and rabies is not. And hopefully it won't take as long for people to get their minds around, okay, we have to have the same kind of attitude toward new viruses as we do viruses for which we do now have great understanding. Helena, thank you so much. And I will not look at a ketchup packet the same way again. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Lena's son covers public health and infectious diseases for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Alana Gordon. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Lucy Perkins. Thanks to Fennett Nirapil. If you love our show, help other people discover it by leaving a rating on Spotify or a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Arjun Singh. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 